Hey, Ritter Nation, we are going to do something a little bit different. We are going to start bringing you the Coffee Conversation events to podcast. So what that means is, for those of you who don't know what a Coffee Conversation event is, we call them Coffee Combos. Uh, they are events where we talk about local and national news at a coffee shop near you. So we're going to start bringing that to you guys via podcast. Make sure that if you couldn't make it there physically, you can still enjoy the audio. Right now we host these events in Washington, D.C., Richmond, Virginia, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Chicago, Illinois, and Minneapolis, Minnesota. So this episode, definitely a little rough with the sound, uh, and it's long because coffee combos are about two hours, so... Um, this is just allowing you guys, if you do have the time or if you have some, you know, a long commute, you can just put this on and listen to the conversations that are being had at these various events across the country. And we hope to see you come to one in person sometime, but if you can't, don't worry. That's why we're bringing it to you via podcast. So without further ado, our, uh, last coffee combo event at Collectivo Coffee Lakefront in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Enjoy. It's coming down pretty good now. <laughs> His windows are down. That's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, I've I've been there before. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I mean, the first question, the first headline that we're going to talk about is probably pretty uh, heavy. But it is in the news. It is something that's very much um, on the minds of a lot of folks out there. Uh, if you look at Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, they're all, you know, right out there on the forefront, kind of um, changing the laws that are in existence right now. So, uh, just what do we think about that? What were our thoughts? What are our initial reactions to what's going on? And do we? I think a big question is right now. We know when we talk about abortion rights. We know that Roe versus Wade exists. We know that it, that is the law of the land. And these these laws would basically scale that back if they were to succeed and not to, and you know not be challenged by you know, the, the state courts. So, what are our thoughts on that? And just want to see what you guys think. I guess what I would say is, um, you know, it's an interesting quandary because when I think about. Well, banning abortion is basically, I mean, you know, the pro-abortion aspect is to say, hey, let's be fair to women and to moms. Um, you know, but then you have people who want to subject that mom to, like, oh my gosh, you can't, you can't kill that kid, you know? And it's like, okay, their solution is just to keep the weight of the whole thing out of the mom. You know, and it's just like to me, I, to me, that's the challenge society has to answer. It's, yes, we want to you know, allow kids to uh, be born. You know, there's cases where you know, carrying the pregnancy through the term and, and to you know, have the you know, have a baby. I mean, that, that's a health issue of its own. But this issue to me is more. You know, it extends to the, the burden to a woman to take care of a child and you know, it's, it's obviously a lifelong commitment. So 
I think um, in the last presidential debates on the Republican side, you know, Governor Chris Christie, I think he, he made a statement that, you know, the pro-life is uh, a room to commitment, you know, by society. Say it takes a village to raise a child. You know, I think we have to create a wraparound solution for women that says, bring this baby to term, the USA has you covered, and we're going to support you all along the way because you may have some people just walking away from fatherhood. And, you know, I mean, we have to show them that we get the crisis. You know, I think that's the problem. So, so that's what's lacking when you just pass abortion bans and you say, okay, we solve the problem. Well, no, you don't, because then you're just going to have an uprising to say that all these women are going to be like, what are you doing? And you say, like, you know, I really hurt you, I'm struggling. You know, as much as you want me to take care of this kid, I, I can't. I can't take care of this kid. Now I'm And they say that you can put them up for adoption and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, what is that? Well, yeah, but I, I, my, my issue, and I'm glad you're bringing up the other side of this, of the pro-life, that we have that viewpoint there, and you're exactly right that if we're going to say, if we're going to say a life is valuable, we need to be sure that that life is valuable after birth, not just before, but I want to definitely point out from my background with a fundamentalist Christian household that I've never seen this issue as actually about that baby at all. <laughs> I've always seen this issue as about controlling women. And that's why the disconnect, because once it's born, there's no place to control the woman. We just don't care anymore. And, and our evidence of that is these same people that are saying pro-life are actually arguing against food stamps for kids in inner cities. They're arguing against taking care of people. So there's such a rabid hypocrisy to their stance that it has no legitimacy in my view. It's one thing about, so the, the debate about what, what we should do and where we draw the lines and what constitutes a viable baby and all that need to be had, but they need to be had in the context of something resembling democracy that allows the people to decide what the values of the society are. Oh, well, um so I like that we're talking about the concept of personhood to some extent, because I don't think there's any agreement on at what point that bundle of cells becomes a person. And I think that's important because if you don't, you know, depending on what where you read and what you're reading, for example, I saw something the other day that said, according to, to the Bible, assuming you're, you know, you're, you're a Bible person, uh, life comes with the first breath. There is no first breath until you're born. Um, but then other people say, but life is life. Well, that's true, but all life is life. That doesn't stop people from killing ants. I'm just saying. Um, and it's, it may seem like it's not the same thing, but, you know, that's just something to consider. Another thing I think about a lot when we talk about the abortion issue is what you brought up. We already have a crisis of children who are not cared for in the foster care system. I know, because I used to work in the foster care system. And we have people who only go into that system to get money off of that child. And the children are mistreated. They're frequently abused almost as badly as they were when we took them from their parents' home. So, you know, if, if we're going to say you can't have an abortion, 
I agree with you. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta provide better services. We have to provide better, and most importantly, we can't allow the fathers to walk away. You just can't. No. And if if the mother doesn't want the child, then the father needs to definitively say he doesn't want the child, and both mother and father can pay child support for the care of that child if they have a choice. And I think that's what the real problem is. Men don't have a choice either. Women. As long as, as Roe v. Wade is in place, have a choice, and men do not. And I think that's the only reason this is a big issue today, is because they don't have a choice. So, looking at how Roe v. Wade operates, looking at the fact that men don't have a choice as to whether or not they want to be a parent, it's completely my decision. Um, well, you know, assuming that you didn't poke a hole in the conference. I'm sorry. Um, it's completely up to me. But what if we change some of the dynamic of how we approach that? We either provide the resources that you're talking about, or we give fathers an option, the same option we give women. You know what? We found out on X date that, that there's a baby coming. You have X amount of time to decide whether or not you want to be a father. And, and she can decide whether or not she wants to be a mother in, in the same way. So if you decide you don't want to be a father, you sign all the paperwork or whatever, you are now free and clear. There's nobody coming after you for child support. There's nobody coming after you for care of the child because you said you didn't want to be involved. This was not a planned pregnancy. You didn't go into this together wanting to have a child. It was an accident. And you should have the ability, and I think that's what a lot of this is really about. Men don't have a choice. And you know, in our society, that's something that most men are simply not used to. What do you mean I don't have a choice? Well, you kind of don't. If we give men that option, I think the entire abortion is going to go well. Well, I, I think that one of the biggest questions is if you, know, you give the man a choice and the mother wants to carry the term, but then the man does not, so it still remains the choice of, of the woman in this equation, right? It's still the, yeah, it's still the, the woman's choice yeah. to a certain extent. But if we're talking about a society where you're not going to be allowed to carry, to, to, to make the choice anyway of, of whether or not you're going to have the baby, it's just a matter of are you going to take care of the baby. Um, then I think the issue is whether or not men also have a choice. Because, that, you know, when you give the baby away, a lot of things are not decided until the baby is born. Our technology has moved by leaps and bounds. Why aren't we doing DNA testing sooner so that we can identify who the father actually is sooner? So that we can, you know, we can actually say, hey, you actually are the father here. Let's make some let's let's make some decisions. Let's lay out a plan. Let's move forward. And no, you don't get to you don't get to backpedal. I mean, because I saw a horrible story online, and it turned out to be true. It worked. Where the the gentleman in question, the father, wanted the baby. The woman did not. So she signed off. She she pays 125 percent of her child support. She has no engagement whatsoever with him or the child. He's discovered that parenting is hard, and, and his mom's not helping him out as much as he thought she would. And now he doesn't want the kid. And I see this kind of stuff happen. It's not just with natural children. I see this happen a lot, even with adopted children. You have people who go into 
system and they don't want to go through the United States adoption policy because U.S. has a lot of rules. They're going to evaluate you. They're going to test you. Are you mentally stable? So they go to Russia and they go to Kenya and they go adopt the baby. They bring it back and it's not what they wanted and then they abandon it. There's, there's something wrong. I'm almost at the point of thinking we shouldn't even have allow international adoptions for that reason. Because the, the primary reason to do it is to circumvent the U.S. evaluation processes to see if you can even make it without a, um, a worthy parent. Doesn't that take a long time? I mean, like, I don't, I don't exactly know what the, the length of U.S. adoptions are, but if you're going overseas to do that, isn't that a, a very long timeline from initial inquiry to actual... It varies depending you know, on how much money you have. It's not? When you go overseas, you can bribe people. That's yeah. something you can't really do. Well, you do it in the U.S. too, because adoptions vary in price anywhere from five, $5,000 on up. Yeah. Okay? And the primary reason adoption costs so much is because of intermediaries. Not because of the actual process, because every state has a child protective services system. Every state has social workers. These systems are already in place. But for some reason, adoption agencies have sold this idea that if you come to us, we'll help you find the baby you are looking for. They're going to the same pool of kids that, you know, that we are. And, and social work, it, it's really, if you go through the government agencies, it might take a little longer because, yes, we are evaluating you. But it's not going to cost you $5,000 and up. And that's what, that's what the thing is. Every, every, you know, I have a friend who adopted. I, you know, I'm like, that's nice. What she did was she used an adoption agency and she did it because she wanted a very specific thing. She wanted that baby from the point of birth. And they didn't want to pay for a um, for someone to carry the baby. Term. You know, they, they didn't want to get a, a, a what do you call Surrogate. it? Surrogate. So, you know, they paid this agency to go out and find people who were carrying who probably didn't want the baby. And, you know, got the DNA results on the mother, the DNA results on the father. I mean, it was just, it got to the point where it's like, this isn't really about adopting. This is about shopping for that child that you want. He's going to check off all the boxes that you're looking at. And that's one of the biggest problems when people say, oh, you can adopt. No, you can't because people aren't looking to adopt a child. They're looking to adopt a child out of a magazine that fits certain criteria. Nobody, for example, you know, I, I hear this argument all the time about how, oh, black people are aborting more babies and the issue is they're going to kill the black babies. No, here's the reality. Black women who choose to have an abortion, and actually any woman of color who chooses to have an abortion, the vast majority of the time they've sat down, they've looked at the numbers, they've looked at who can care for their baby, and you know what? The darker your baby, the less likely it's going to be adopted. Like, phenomenally low chances of adoption. Nobody wants a child growing up in the foster care system. And people say, oh, but foster care is better than nothing. Until you hear the horror story. The kids that have been killed. The kids that have been molested. The kids that have been abused. Stop. You know, and there's money to care for them. The state's providing money to care for these kids. And they're being abused in our existing system. Nobody wants that for their kids. And under those circumstances, I completely understand why women choose abortion. 
that. And takes us to that, uh, you know, man of worship and some sort of response that is just not diving into the evil issue of the cause. Peppermint. 
Um, these are things that are just not going to happen because you don't have that setup. And when, when the baby is born, you're going to face other challenges around childcare. So you need to start talking like yesterday about your financial plan. How are you going to make this work? You know, your uncle is not a fan of welfare at all. So you need to figure out how if you're going to use welfare, you're going to get off welfare because he's not going to sit here and watch you on welfare for six years. That's just not going to happen in this house. You know, and so that was, it was, a, it was, an, it was a, a, an ongoing conversation where, we're, you know, I'm, I'm working through my experience because I, I'm like, I've been where you are. I know what you're dealing with. And I don't want to lie to you. It's hard. It's really hard. But I promise you at the end of the day, push yourself and you get through this, you made, you made this commitment and you do it. There are huge rewards, it's just you have to be patient because you're not going to see him. You're not going to see him sometimes for years. Uh, and you have to be patient and you have to be strong and it's okay to call, to lean on us, to ask for help. And we'll help you where we can. But you have to also understand that at the end of the day, you are ultimately responsible for this little life that you brought into this world without the father's assistance, other than initial initial contact. You're, you're completely responsible for this person's life. So, uh, yeah, we definitely need to be able to provide that support for you, and we're not doing that either. You know, it's like, we just want to say no. And I think that's actually one of the problems that we have in society. We've gotten into this habit of just saying no. No, you can't have an abortion. No, you can't have food stamps. No, we're not going to socialize health care. No, we don't. It's not my problem if you die because you didn't go get preventive health care. You should have been a mature adult and wanted to get health care. Without actually talking about what the obstacles are to those things and why people are struggling. You know, this is supposedly a capitalistic society. If it's truly capitalistic, why is it that 1% of the population owns like 50% of the wealth in this country? Because in a capitalist environment, there should be an exchange of resources and we don't have that. So the reality is we are living in a surf type scenario, an economic surf thing, and people are clinging so hard to this concept that's not true about capitalism that we're not actually solving for the issues of our own society.
trying to uh, build into this, you know, building, um, you know, accommodations and things, features in this building, to pretty much say that some people in their dwelling place, you know, they need different technology, or different layouts, different features, like, That's, that's a satellite location for him. He's usually based in the city. 
so how do you how do you address the fact that we have rural America is struggling? And, and the worst part is you have this whole movement. I'm just gonna say where the Democratic Party is now fighting. Oh, we need to get rid of the electoral college. It's like you already. Let's be real. Republicans are already ignoring poor people, and now you want to ignore the rural people who are another subset of poor people, so that you can win. And we can't. We got to start. You know, you can't argue you're the party of the minor of all these little minority groups when you keep ignoring the minority groups. And rural people are a minority group in this country at this point in time, and they have needs that are not being met, and we're ignoring them, which is, you know. Not to be weird, urban environments cannot survive on their own. Right. We don't produce anything. We got little urban gardens because they can't feed the city. We need the rural America. And we're not even taking any steps to understand their needs, make sure they're met, so that they can continue to provide, so these urban environments can continue to flourish. Amen. <laughs> Normally I like to argue, but... <laughs> <laughs> Okay with what he just said. 
you know? And I got his attention in following meetings. He started telling me about other things that I was saying about collective impact and the churches, and the service organizations, and the educational entities, and the government agencies, and things. He loved, he loved that dialogue. Because he's like, oh my gosh, there would be, you know, actions happening outside of his agency office that he could connect to. Milwaukee County with the ADRC. There's this Lisa Bittman over there that is the administration of the Aging Disability Resource Center. She used to be with Interplay, which is now Aaron's network, the senior network. And, you know, this is kind of my advocacy. We need to get into this collective impact game, and we need to ignite our population to, to make it united and, and to tackle these issues. Like when you say abortion, it's, um, you know, it's asking fellow citizens to respond to a very basic trend that is not healthy. We're trending with our technology tools and everything. We're living in a very selfish driven trend, which does serve a purpose, because I say there is something like that airplane mentality where you put the oxygen mask on yourself. You make sure you're you're doing yourself and feeling yourself strong so that when you go to somebody else, you're able to provide them, you know, something in the greatest capacity. But I'm like, we're way beyond that. We're literally just putting ourselves in good, good, don't need to bother with any of that stuff. And people are not engaging in service projects, the idea of, you know, family work and stuff. It's out there, it's still a great magnitude. It's not that. It's just that we've followed the decades of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 30s, 70s. And today, and looking at what's happening, you know, in our communities, is that this struggle is getting a little bit more white, you know, and it's getting a little bit more basic and, you know, it's troublesome. You know, I tell stories about the over at Milwaukee and I'm a show singer out there with a ski club. There's over a hundred people. Somebody's watching me, somebody's watching me come in from off of the water and I'm engaging them and then I basically find out that their interests or who they are strikes me is they would fit well in your ski club. And I'm asking this gentleman, would you ever give it a thought to join our club? And then it was like silence. It was like, it was like kind of an off-base question, whatever. But I just kind of treated it like a pregnant pause. Like, I just wanted to see what he'd say. Like, like I've been listening. I really want to answer this. And all he could come up with was, I thought you had to do something. Wow. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, Engagement. So talk about, I'm going to talk about privilege and socioeconomic moments. Wow. Yeah. I had a conversation that I didn't know. I'm like, I've been doing this for 33 years. I'm glad to step away and like, take my spot or whatever. Wow. And, and we've got people in this mentality that they're not worthy of stuff that we haven't Yes. And that know, bothers me a lot, too. Because I'm like... I don't understand this idea that you, you, whoever you are, a lot, doesn't have an opinion worth hearing. Okay? If this is supposedly a democracy, why are we why are we not listening to people? Why are we not, you know, engaging because honestly, what are our laws for if they're not to make our lives better? Yeah. I mean what, what 
Honestly, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying there aren't times that Congress has to think about things that we don't think about. And I'll give you an example of that. So, um, I admin a group on Facebook, and in the group, I randomly do surveys just to figure out what people are thinking about and come up with better topics. I said, so, what are, what are the issues that make you engage in politics? And everybody listed their stuff, da 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 And I looked at the list, and I left it up there for a week. And I said, well, now we know why the roads aren't fixed. Nobody, nobody named infrastructure. That's why the roads aren't fixed. It's not sexy. Nobody cares about it. Nobody cares about it until you hit that pothole. But then you rant about it, you call, you call your city councilman or whatever, and, and that's about it. Um, so, so we need, we need better representatives, people who are people, people who, you know, I, I, I have a real issue with the fact that almost everybody in Congress is wealthy. I, and I'm being told, I've actually been told, oh, you just have a thing about people having money. No, I have a thing about how is it when you went in making $176,000 a year, you came out a millionaire. I'm, I'm struggling with that because I'm trying to figure out how you came out a millionaire without somehow either being corrupt or taking advantage of the, of the position that we gave you, which is corrupt. I, I don't understand that. I really, I really struggle with that. Well, so, <laughs> may, may I give a little pitch? So, we, we started out as, and as a white male, I'm speaking for the white male plutocracy is what we started as, white male landowners. It wasn't even people without land. We're now even more elite as a bunch of mostly white, mostly male billionaires that actually own our politicians, and that is who they are representing. And they're representing them very well. They're actually, they're representing the 1%, or the 0.1% very well. The last study that I saw, and I just went to two events down the League of Women Voters in uh, in uh, Wheaton, in Chicago, where I'm from here, DuPage County, the purplest county in uh, Illinois. Um, there was a study that was brought up two different times. They did this massive study where the bottom 70%, democracy stands right at the middle, 50% was what would rule on any given issue, right? Um, the bottom 70% have zero influence on public policy. Zero. It's not even statistically measurable, which means that the only people that are being attended to is the 30% and really the more like the 0.1%, but um, so that we don't have a democracy because we've divided ourselves up into these two pockets where one side is pretty much all about personal responsibility and the other side is pretty much all about social responsibility without the common sense that it's both. So we don't actually have a party representing sanity. We literally don't have a party that represents the reality of it's a combination of, yes, personal responsibility, but yes, let's have that social safety net. Let's make sure we take care of each other. So, And that's so true, because like I grew up in New Orleans, and we have the Audubon Park system. Because Audubon, uh, you probably know him because he did a lot of stuff for zoos and just like that. He came, he basically was extremely wealthy. He, he donated money to build our park, which is city-owned park, but he paid for it. Uh, he did the same thing with a zoo. He paid for it. We didn't have money as a city to pay. And so I understand the, the, the desire to stop taxing uh, 
big business as hard so that they can contribute. The problem is they don't actually contribute. That's the real problem. When you look at like uh, you look at those foundation organizations, the percentage of money that they actually reinvest back into the community is so small compared to what they take out of the community and profit that it's negligible. It's not even worth discussing. They're not, you know, there's this whole thing about how, you know, if you, I'm just a little Spider-Man. Go to, you know, if you have, to, to those who have great power, there's great responsibility. I'm not seeing that responsibility. And that's why, keeps, that's why you have this ongoing legislation now. Because those who have are not being responsible social level anymore. So yeah, taxes have gone up on wealth, but the wealthy also stopped doing stuff. You know, the wealthy used to like adopt highways and stuff. The wealthy used to adopt parks and careful. The wealthy used to adopt schools and fund them and provide for them. There was no there's no reason in a country that's supposedly as wealthy as we are for any school to be self Any school. That we should not have children with so much promise not having access to the resources to display that promise. That is a guaranteed certain situation where you have our best and brightest are not rising to the top. The only people rising to the top are the people with the money to pay to get through the system. How is that in long term, when you think about it, this is how we are where we are now. Because if only the people who can pay to get through the system rise to the top, we don't have the best and the brightest. Our economy is supposed to falter because we are putting good product out there to make people want to come give us money. Even our own multinational organizations, the ones that are established here in the United States with, with offices around the world, would rather pay for labor outside the country because it's cheaper, they're faster, and they're smarter than we are. And to pretend otherwise is the lie that's going to kill this Give a lecture. Yeah. And so, 
need to reevaluate how we're evaluating people, how we're evaluating labor. You know, we've allowed these organizations, by the way, to charge us money to judge whether or not we're worthy, and they do it badly. And I'll give you an example, another example, credit company, credit, uh, credit monitoring company. Wait a minute, I'm supposed to, I'm so, you're gonna scrape my information, but not all of it, just the people who pay you to get information on you. Scrape that information, come up with a credit score, and then make a judgment about whether or not I'm a good credit risk. Even though there's a lot of missing information, and I'm not even going to touch on the fact that you actually have a crap, crap, a crap system for protecting my information that I did not authorize you to collect. And then you make a profit off of my information that I did not authorize you to collect. And I get jacked other than screwed because you've decided that my credit score is below whatever random number you made up so that you could generate profits. Wow. Wow. Okay. And you guys have now? Or? We have to go get Felicia. She's okay. going to be dropped off on the bus here shortly. So we're just, he's going to stay. We're going to go get her. We'll be right back. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, that's actually a good segue. Students are graduating. That, that's number five. I mean, we can just go right into that because well, <laughs> graduations are happening around the country right now. Well, yeah. How do we feel about that in terms of um, skills over degrees? Okay. You know, is, is school is, <laughs> is college debt worth it in this day and age? I have a feeling, Kurt, you're gonna come over and join us while she's away, so we can be, have a tighter little, uh, tighter little enclave circle. of. Uh, Thanks for that vote of confidence. I was unsure if you wanted me. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I, I like so so. Uh, Hey, we, we, even, we even got some parity here, I like it, uh, except you are the only sole representative of, of gender equity. Sustainable development goal number five is on you. <laughs> How does that feel? By the way, I sent you a Facebook request and I sent you a uh, uh, Pinion's your last name. Yeah. <laughs> I figured it out because I'm good at Google search. <laughs> Who knows Lorenzo? Name good cool. at scraping your data. <laughs> I'm, I'm good you know, honestly, it's, it's not hard because I'm like the only opinion in the you're, all, you're the only what? I am the only Ula Pinion in the world. I'm in Illinois. And if you look so. up, if you look up Ula and you're in Milwaukee and it does like a geographic search, I pull up right away. Yes. Well, I just yeah. made sure you were connected to this dude, and so I figured, well, that, there, how many Ulas are connected to Lorenzo? I just sort of figured Milwaukee Ulas yeah. and Lorenzo. That had to be a hit. That's a hit. Uh, I'm a statistician. I'm a I'm a I'm an actuary. So. <laughs> See, we need more people like this. Well, <laughs> so I keep trying to convince him is I need more people like me, but, but Kurt, Kurt and I He's are. Still working <laughs> on it. <laughs> We've, we've had a few conversations. <laughs> yeah. we've had, we, about a year's worth here of intense. Uh, so, so we got the core group of world fixers right here, which I love. I always love it when I get the core group of world fixers together, with with varying opinions. With with, uh, but but all of us, I think, committed to this idea. Are you Christian by chance? Are you a? No, Lapsed, lapsed what? Lapsed like, what? No, actually, I, I didn't. We didn't grow up. I didn't grow up in the oh, church. Oh, you weren't even corrupted. You weren't no, even I like I didn't grow up in the church at all. Um, and I do have like a wall of religious texts because when we had questions, my dad was like, um, "There's a book over there. Go read it." <laughs> okay, so so this expression "least of these" is something that's used quite often in the Old Test in the New Testament, right? The Gospels mm -hmm. of how, how you treated the least of these, Matthew yeah. 25. So. <laughs> 
from a secular standpoint, our mission is about, our foundation's mission is about maximizing the well-being of the worst off. And it turns out the vast majority of people say, yeah, sign me up for that one. Left wing, right wing, independent, doesn't matter. Yeah, sure, take care of the worst off. Until you get into the details. <laughs> Do you get into how much is coming out of my hide to make sure that we collectively take care of the worst off? And now we debate. Now this thing called democracy, if we had it, would be kind of useful. <laughs> so so we the least of these is the other way I'd turn because seventy percent of Americans claim to be you're you're Catholic, you were raised Southern Baptist. You're I was raised Worldwide Church of God, Herbert Armstrong, which is a cult even by Southern Baptist standards. So you got oh, you escaped. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, I felt it over here. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> we want to get into uh, definitions. <laughs> so I, I've been studying some of this stuff for the last 40 years <laughs> of, of how we came to be. And I did love pretty much everything you said. I had nothing. I was ready to just, why aren't you in that crowd on the Democratic side but hacking the Democratic Party? You know about United America? Yes. You do? I do. Um, <laughs> actually, I was for, I was briefly affiliated with the Milwaukee chapter. Um, we have some differences of opinion. I think it's I a worthwhile, long-term goal. I think on the national level, it's the, the, the goals are clearer. We are at the local level. At the local level, I think there's just like, it's like, oh, it's gonna sound terrible. It's like hippie liberals who are who aren't happy with what how things turned out, and so they think they're conservative and they're not conservative, and they're kind of hippie liberals. And every once in a while, they pull in a libertarian. That's kind of how it felt. Oh, as far as, well, that's true of the whole transpartisan movement, is there's a bunch of liberals with a bunch of libertarians in the middle that realize they have no home at all. If you're a libertarian, you're socially uh, liberal, and you're economically conservative, you have no party, because one of the parties is pulling you one way and the other, the other way, right? So libertarians dominate this transpartisan movement on a per capita basis. I, I actually met, I, I reached out to both as a husband-wife that are, that own... Right, that are the, and I still get the email. I sent the emails and I'm connected to, to I, uh, the wife actually. I talked to the I talked to her, but she didn't connect with me. I connected to him, but I didn't talk to him. <laughs> I haven't figured out how. She's to... actually the driver. She's the driver. He's the head. She's the driver. But she talks about hacking the DNC RNC because of our tenuous situation now. In other words, instead of trying to create a third party, it's going to end up pulling votes away and re-electing mm -hmm. a certain individual. But <laughs> yeah, that's the party. That's that's United America's strategy actually is to get enough people on either side of the aisle. Yeah. To, to agree to certain things such that you can you can change the dialogue and I think I mean it's I think it's a good strategy I, you know I think one of the worst things that we've done as a country is we insisted on labeling everybody and everything yeah oh you're a conservative oh you're a Democrat oh you're a Republican. so now I think I know everything about you Meat even boxes. though well but we we did we did we didn't insist on it it was insisted upon us so you've got the dominant owners, and let's get back to some rich folk here. MSNBC, rich folk own that. Fox News, rich folk own that. The narratives that are put out by Fox News and MSNBC are specifically designed to make sure I hate you because you are on the wrong side of history. Um, and if I can get enough people hating each other, rural whites and urban blacks hating one another, feeling like that's the problem, I'm, I'm good. I can keep up, I can keep my bank account secure. I don't have to worry about you know. I can I can uh, exploit the serfdom. It's it's like what I call you know. It's like nonprofits in, in Milwaukee area. There's a ton of nonprofits here. All of them fighting for the same money, right? Yep. Like, and I'm like, why are y'all sitting here? I'm serious. I, I volunteered with this organization, and this lady nickel and dime me, wanting to know 
you need to know how many sheets of paper you use so that we can figure out how much that costs. And I was just like, lady, I'm not here for this, okay? You were literally asking me how, what, how, how many $2 bills I spent on this. And meanwhile, there's like money out in the, in the sphere, but you guys are so busy fighting over this $10 bill that you don't understand that there's other monies you could be working with. Yep. And I'm not gonna sit here, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just, no. Well, forget that. Take the fact that really, realistically, if you really counted everything, that maybe 25 to 30% of the entire nonprofit budget is related to development, which is to say raising the funds that's gonna support them as they're competing for this zero-sum game. Yep. And meanwhile, they are not collaborating at all because they're, they're competing for the They're competing for the money. So what he and I are working on, and I'm trying to conscript him to, is this idea <laughs> of using Meetup which is what, is this still on Meetup or did you give up on Meetup? It's, it's on Meetup. It's on Meetup, but it's not your main source. But Meetup is out there in front of 30 million people in this country. So it's, a, it's always a marketing problem. If you're building a movement, if you can reach 10% of the population instantly, that's not a bad place to start. But the idea of having these One America Meetups, One America, just Unite America, essentially One America Meetups that are all across Milwaukee area, Kenosha, Racine, uh, uh, what's your county again there, Kurt? Waukesha. <laughs> Waukesha. Uh, and what, there's seven counties in the greater Milwaukee area? Something like that. But if you ended up having, let's say, nine to 12 meetup groups where it's outside of the organization. Organizations are, are the, they're the 666 number of the beast. I, I am so anti-organization, I can't even tell you. Because they automatically constrain us to this, this uh, the board of directors mission, what they're trying to do. Instead of, but if you get the individuals out of those organizations, you know the ones that actually cared about poverty or cared about homelessness mm -hmm. and mental health issues, if they're joining in, they provide a bridge to the organization in a way, but they're not constrained by the organization. They can go run a group where they're around. Name your issue. We talk about five H's of suffering, hunger, homelessness, hopelessness, hate, crimes, and health issues. So pretty much cover all the suffering. Unemployment's not about unemployment. It's about not being able to keep a roof over your head. There's an economic. But if we got those issues and people clustered around those issues that came in and organized these meetups, you're now going to pull from every organization and non-organization people that just care about that, that topic. So collective impact, when you're talking about collective impact, is always zeroing in on a specific topic and say, how can organizations come together? Well, we tried that for a few years now, since 2011. And you go look it up on Wikipedia, collective impact. It's basically still competing for limited dollars, not wanting to really do much collaboration. We just want to disband with the organizations and bring the individuals in and say, let's just do this grassroots. Let's just say we know what we want, we know what we care about, we know that we differ on any given issue. We differ, but we know that we have a, a most of us agree that the idea of democracy is a way to arbitrate that difference. And we just don't have a democracy. So if we fix the democracy problem, there's a whole lot of stuff that gets fixed in a pretty expedited fashion. So how do you move from the conversation to implementation? Well, it's critical mass. So there's a point, because you can't, it makes no good to lose an election and say, hey, I had 42% of the people that cared about democracy and, and I just lost the 58% that didn't, right, to play the existing game. So critical mass in the purple districts is how you end up, if you could demote the DNC and the RNC to minority status, remember the Gang of Eight, remember McCain. If you could demote the DNC and RNC and the U.S. House of Representatives specifically, let's focus on them. They're the closest to the people, right? Elected every two years, you know, 750,000 per district. 
Um, if you can demote to where they're both 45 each, but you've got 10% in the center, 10% United America, if you will, with an extra. So United America is flawed, deeply flawed. Why? Because it doesn't have any mechanism of actual accountability to the will of the people as measured by real dialogue of a representative sample of constituents. That's the only way to know that you are representing your constituency. If you take a representative sample of people, POP.org, Citizen Cabinet Initiative. If you haven't seen it, well, you, I just sent you, I, there's a whole boatload of stuff I just sent you because my LinkedIn profile includes some, I've been doing this for 23 years, unpaid because there's no organization to pay me for what I do. <laughs> and. Uh, but that's the, the fact that you've been involved with them. You, were you involved with them at all, Lorenzo? Uh, United, United America. America. You, were, you were involved with Represent Us, though, you said. You know about Represent Us? So Represent Us is another one of these bridge alliance networks. There's 99 organizations right now. United America, BOP.org, Represent Us, and a whole host of others that are in this alliance to build this movement that we're talking about here. It just started taking off in about 2013. After 40 years, 42 years of nothing. This idea was invented in 71, this idea of real democracy, of empowering it, and it just sat in political science journals. He got a master, he got, not a master, he got an undergraduate degree in political science from the Naval Academy, you know. So, this idea, you, you ran across deliberative democracy because it was in a political science journal. How many people are sitting around reading political science journals? So there we go. That was our problem, us. right? There's a few, but but we ain't, we ain't a critical mass. <laughs> Rose, Rose, I'm sure reads it. We're a little short of critical mass here. Yeah. So the whole idea is how do we take that theoretical construct and say, how can we get some people excited about something as boring as deliberative democracy? And the only way to do it is to find a way to map it to say, look, all these things you're claiming you care about, extra federal dollars for pancreatic cancer, uh, to Asperger support groups, to carbon taxes to any, I don't care, Medicare to zero, you care about this thing, if I can show you a path to get there, and get there in a much more expedited way, would you sign up? And it turns out this democracy thing could do some magic if you empower it. And it's actually empowered in a couple places. This is real. This is, Oregon has it. The state of Oregon has it. The, you, the citizen initiative review thing, you, we've talked about that. Um, that was the group of people I've been hanging out with for the last few years have been northwest of you know, Washington State and Oregon are the ones. You've interviewed Tom Antley, Jim Ruff. There's these people that, a bunch of white dudes, I hate to say it, but that's just, I'm sorry, my apologies. <laughs> but we're, this movement, you're rich enough, right? You sit in a corner and theorize something, you end up being the ones that can come out to be the savior. Of, and of course, that goes over like a lead balloon. <laughs> I've been battling that for a long time, too. There's, there's not diversity in this movement. It is just embarrassingly unidimensional <laughs> as we talk about empowering diversity <laughs> but um, but but nevertheless Austria there's a district in Austria that actually has wisdom councils which sounds real hokey and new agey and all literally representatives council of wisdom where they their policies their public policies are matched to the wisdom councils of this representative sample of people and all Jim Ruff's trying to do is say we can do that everywhere and I'm arguing with him because I say you can't do it in this broken system two-party we got to change the entire cultural narrative. We got to actually get people. <laughs> well, it, I think I think we can. I think that's part of the part of the problem is that we're not, you know, politicians are actually paying attention to these conversations on social media. The problem is, for example, they're paying attention to Twitter. But it, the Twitter's like, ah, you just yell into the ether, right? There's not a dialogue. The conversation's more limited. Yeah. Um, platforms like Facebook, 
have no room for you to have a dialogue. It's a slower dialogue than what you're going to have on Twitter. It's a different dialogue than what you're going to have on Twitter. And honestly, that's one of the challenges I'm facing, and I know even Redder, Redder News faces, is trying to have that dialogue. And you're not trying to shut people down, but no, we, we want to talk about, I'm not talking about Trump's hair today. Okay? <laughs> I'm really not. I don't, I don't really care if, if his wig flipped up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't oh, I know. How, how ridiculous if this is the thing we, we focus on just a way to poke fun at. Can we talk about what, what, the, what, what they're talking about doing with the prison system? Is that something we want to do? Does it make sense? Can we talk about those issues? Because at the end of the day, you can, see, you got me saying it now. You can fire, you can fire these people because while they have the money to run the ads, only you can go into the booth and vote. Right. But you have to have an alternative to find acceptable. And we have a divided system where the entire middle of the curve is neglected, 76% yes. in the middle. And that's part of the problem. But we're not also having this, this dialogue, which we're having today. <laughs> we're not having this dialogue where, you know, we can address, well, what is it most people think? Because I think there's really more agreement than there's disagreement. Oh, but we don't more. sit down and talk about these things. We're like, oh, you hate, you, you, you're against um, abortion and you're for abortion. It's like, well, actually, you know, I know a lot of people who are pro-abortion because they don't see other options for people who are in bad situations. They're not really pro-choice. They, they, they themselves would never consider having an abortion. They themselves would never consider, you know, uh, doing that. But they understand that there, there are these challenges because the way our system is structured, a lot of things are not taken care of, like you were talking about. Where's the wraparound? Right. Okay. But so there's a lot of points of agreement, but we get stuck in these labels and we get stuck in these talking points, which annoy the hell out of people. Even, even Trump has come out to his credit against a lot of these laws that these states are making. Yeah. He's like, wait a minute, hold on. I'm actually, I'm pro-life, but these are my caveats. You know, because a lot of these laws don't allow for rape or incest. Yeah. There's no exceptions at all. Well, you do know. Maybe There's the life of the mother, that's about rape. it. So, well, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, apparently, yeah. <laughs> so, but don't forget, it's a whole bunch of, that list of white men who decided yeah, your body that, can shut that, that list down, of white men that you know decided. What's wrong with that? And, uh, you know, we, gotta, we should really talk about this, too. Is that, it, we keep saying what white men decided, what white men decided. And let's be real, yeah. it's not a vacuum. A bunch of people supported and voted yeah, for yeah, that. Yeah. And, you know, we always leave. I hate to say it, but we leave white women out of the dialogue. Get them off the hook, the ones that are 50%. Yeah, completely off the hook. You know, that governor signed it. Yeah, she, yeah, could, she could have yeah. vetoed it. And no, but but let's be real about let's be real about what that looks like. And I grew up in that culture in in Worldwide Church of God. Remember? Yeah. <laughs> uh, my my and you guys know this story, but I'll, I lost my mother was beaten to death by my father the age of four, a ruptured spleen, theological patriarchy. I have the right to beat my disobedient wife, so I I come at this from a real place of of rage against injustice, if you will. So theological patriarchy to me is the number one evil on the planet, on the planet. Um, and, and when I look at those white women, those are women just like my mother who were brainwashed into, literally cowed into this idea of accepting that they have to submit to the... If you're, if you're taught from birth that you're supposed to submit to the spiritually superior head of the house that's your male, because that's what's in the Old Testament, right? There's 600 references in the Bible to the fact of women being inferior to men. 600. 
Yeah. <laughs> and so, so to blame them for being indoctrinated. I mean, I'm just saying. There's, there's. Who do you think wants to? Who, who has the better vested interest in sustaining that narrative? The men or the women? I'm just gonna say, you know, that's all well and good, but um, you know, these are the same women out here marching for, marching for pro-choice and all against. All, it's like, oh, we can't have. We need to protect our bodies. Blah 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 blah. I'm sitting there, I'm like, um, where we are when we were talking about Black Lives Matter? Right, right. You know, you were silent. And now you want to co-op, because, it's, you know, you want to co-op things that were created to move the BLM, to push Black Lives Matter forward, because now you have something important to you. And so one of the biggest problems I have with the feminist movement is that it's not intersectional at all. Oh, right, right, right. You know, yeah. and, it's, 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 and it goes beyond that, because white women have profited way more from affirmative action than any other group of people yep. in the United States. Yep. It's like, well, what? And now, you know, I got into this huge argument because somebody was talking about, you got to lean in. I'm like, girl, I can't lean in. I'm not even <laughs> yeah. in the damn room. Right, right, right. That's and, okay. and you sit here talking about lean in. And, and you know, I'm, I don't want to argue about the glass ceiling if I can't even get in the door. And you don't want to talk about the fact that I can't get in the door. Right. But this idea, but so I take intersectionality one step further, and I say, if we, like our, our hashtag, oh, we have two hashtags to work at, because we do believe future generations count, so this idea of sustainability, addressing climate change and all, because that's real hard to talk about when you talk about in the street injustice right now, for about future generations. The sustainable, hashtag sustainable, hashtag equity for all. Because when you say equity for all, you can't say that and then justify this sectional, approach to things and I completely agree with you about women that that feminist movement is dominated by and let's call it what it is middle-class women who, who feel themselves to be not not where they should be who end up monolithically defining an agenda that ends up being the narrative for that uh -huh. and and sabotaging a lot of justice work because they get identified with so when Rush Limbaugh comes out he talks how many times does he say feminazi a day how many times I mean in a three-hour period yeah. <laughs> I don't listen to him that often but <laughs> you do listen to him you, you listen to Rush at all you like Rush at all I don't understand the Rush Limbaugh for a long time but but you like him a little bit I mean he's just because you're I listen to him every now and then just to see what he's yeah, it's more of the curiosity. But he never misses. He's very popular, so. Howdy's guy does who influence. is a fat drug addict who can't keep a woman, the model of conservative thought. I'm just like, are you serious? Have you, have you been in a good old boy network lately? Yeah. <laughs> opioid, opioid. <laughs> what, what, which, which characteristic do you well, think they okay, don't identify with? Well, okay, so what you with? just said is interesting. <laughs> fat drug addict. If, if we if we look at society right now, a lot of people are affected by both. The U.S. is probably one of the most obese countries in the entire world, I'm not, I'm and then not we joking. also have. <laughs> but you know what I mean? They, what I'm saying is, America sees himself in Rush Limbaugh in a lot of ways. At least the conservative side, they, they can identify with. See, but that's them. hilarious. Like, how you see yourself as those a aren't, drug addict? No, but those aren't bad. Those aren't things that people look at and that's they say he is not worthy of, of their influence, of having influence. They're just them. looking at. Oh, his, oh, his. No, here, let me go. Because Liz Khalifa isn't worthy. He's he's Who? not fat. Liz Khalifa. He's, he don't, he's, he's not, not a he's conservative not been influencer. To anything. You know what I mean? In his own circles, Liz Khalifa has. Plenty of influence. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, the concept blows my mind. You don't, it, 
he didn't pick like Tony Tony Robinson. Okay, Tony Robinson to me would have been a good pick for conservative leader. It's like he he's not bad. He he ain't never done drugs as far as I can tell. The only thing he's got going on now is now now what feels like 40 years after the fact, a couple women have stepped forward and said. Addiction is a national emergency right now. No, it's not. The opioid crisis is absolutely it is. It is absolutely true. No, it's not. What it is. Pick a chair. We got coloring here. If you like color, opioids on the market forever and a day. And with some people have been addicted to forever and a day. They're not the only ones addicted now. Now you got these middle class people who were going to their doctors getting legal prescriptions and it was all cool and they're addicted, but they've been addicted. So is your no. point that people they, aren't affected by it as much or that it's only because now it's certain, a mainstream. <laughs> yeah, a certain sub, subtext of the, of our society. Will, exactly but, but it's always been a national it's emergency. It's always been an issue. It hasn't been no, declared. I'm not call it an emergency. It is. I'm call it an issue. No, it's an emergency. It's a health, it's a health. It's crisis issue, not no. It's not a crisis. You don't think because so? Because here's the thing. This is how this is how Mary Jo got addicted. Okay. Sure. Mary Jo was pasty. Mary Jo was middle class. Mary Jo goes to her doctor and says, "I need opioids because I'm in pain." Right. And Mary Jo's doctor gives her the opioids. Right. I go to my doctor with a, and actually I don't have this, but I do know a scenario like this with a fused spine. Right. And I tell my doctor as a black woman. Hey, I'm in pain. I need some opioids. Uh, you're not in that much pain. Mary Jo is addicted because of her privilege. Because yeah. her doctor would not have given those same pills to a person who was darker than she was. That's not a national crisis. Okay? The crisis is racism has allowed this addiction to exist. It's still a national crisis. To, to your point, right. I, I do understand what you're saying. That everyone wasn't given their due attention. Soon enough, but it's always been a ubiquitous issue. Yeah, but let's I, that has permeated our society. Let me tell you what I'm hearing though. When she says not a national, she's saying national to me. There's a universality. This is affecting. Yeah. Well, <laughs> she, she's saying that if you've got an entire excluded population for which that that were just utterly ignored in terms of the national dialogue, uh, and now the only reason it's there is because there's some there's some center here. That's that whole middle class of so middle class whites. Are now affected, and that is true. And, I'm not and, a, disputing that at all. That's well, no, because true. but the crisis. I don't think she's disputing that, that it's bad every every case, it's and, bad. and it's it's like a Vietnam War every year. You know, it's like the number of people dying from from this stuff. That's a crisis measured by whether you know, it be how many people die or whether but, it be but, but I look at that as a distraction. We're one of the most sedentary countries in the world right now. It, okay? Right now. This is how I look at it. It was okay for X number of people to die, yeah. to be homeless, to be without care yeah. for how many years now? Right. It was okay until Susan got right. it. But it's actually what? still okay. It's, and, and, you know, <laughs> no, it's no, not. No, it's not. No, no, it's still okay for the, I'm telling you. Oh, it's you still go, okay still, for the, for the, the vast majority yeah, of people. <laughs> the only person it's not okay for is Susan. So now we got to do something because Susan's addicted. And I'm like, y'all just mad because Susan got fired from her middle class job and she's right. on the verge of being homeless yeah. or kicked out of her spot. She's on the verge of losing her socioeconomic status and we can't have that. You know I ain't worried about Susan. You, you know why? Because Susan's addicted because of rivers. Huh. Lorenzo, you know what the crisis is in Geneva, Illinois? What is the, the crisis? The crisis is that there's a building, an abandoned building, they're trying to build some affordable housing. It's going to let the wrong 
kind of folks into town. That's their crisis. That's what you're they're talking about. Gentrification. I, 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 I am talking of yes, and that is their crisis. They are not talking about opioid addiction at all. Their crisis is their property values are going to collapse if we allow some folks that are that are uh, can afford the housing that's actually in know, there. Let's be real. Property values are a scam. We all get the scams on that property value. Oh, yeah. Y'all own a house. My property values are going up. I that was a great deal. But my property values are going up every year. Why? Because the military base, which is within walking distance of my home, is being reactivated. And they expect an influx of white people in my community. So they got they didn't put in a bike lane. I'm like last one calls actually. Because of the military? I mean our military is pretty not the point. Diverse. Not the point. They expect. They expect because it was constant. Sure. So they expect that people are going to want to live near the base. Yeah. They expect it's going to get they're going to be able to get a lot of money from military folks. Yeah. Let's be real. I don't remember when when Brandon was on on base in first in private housing. I don't remember seeing a bunch of bike lanes everywhere. I remember seeing a bunch of people parked crazy. Yeah. But I don't remember seeing bike lanes everywhere. Living bike lanes are almost ubiquitously a white thing. Okay. Ain't nobody in those bike lanes except for parking right now. Alright? So, you know, it's like, really? You just blocked off half the damn street for a bike lane. Nobody's okay. I mean, it's, and it's, the whole point is to slow traffic down, to cut traffic down. Grab a chair In fact, we have more accidents because of the damn bike lane. But hey, you know, they're in the process, the initial phase of the redefinition. And my property values have risen twenty thousand dollars since I bought my house. Let's let's go to another topic real quick here. I have a, a, another question. Sure. Oh. Real quick, uh, yes. welcome Neil Weber to the show. Hi, Neil. How are you doing? Yes. Lorenzo. Neil. Very good to meet you. I sent you a LinkedIn Thank invitation. You. Thank you. I'll get to that. <laughs> I'm more person bound, but yeah, I, I like your now, now thank you. Now we're you're doing good things there. Right. That's right. What was that? You told me all about you, and so I just figured you would instantly oh, know that. Oh, see, that's my, my assistant. My assistant failed. <laughs> I, I love it. Yes, thank you. Yes, uh, Fiserv, yep, they're doing okay. Yeah. Us, I volunteer with the Knights of Columbus at the okay. Fiserv, that's why I have that, because we volunteer there for it. To, you know, we're we're making good use of it so yes. far. You know? Well, so far. <laughs> we didn't do so well the other night, but yeah. we're hopefully yeah. we'll bounce back. Yep. Okay, let's get back to middle class issues here. We're, we're on number two, so... Oh, the are? question is, are, well, I'm trying to track us there. Okay, okay, okay. Are conservative voices being censored on social media. This is a narrative that is, you know, uh, coming into the foray a lot uh, more. We see voices like Candace Owens, James Woods, and many others um, that Twitter or Facebook is saying, look, they don't deserve to be on the platforms anymore. Do we agree? Do we disagree? What are our thoughts well, on that? Well, let, let, let's start with Alex Jones. We have a place to start. Uh, Alex Jones is an easy one. No, yeah. no, but let's start with him because okay. that... When you've got somebody like Alex Jones, who is certifiably crazy, who is absolutely insane clinically, uh, who has basically got this following that is as corrupting of American democracy or anything else decent as far as I'm concerned, uh, and somebody says, that's not good for society, I, I, and I get it, censorship and all, but this idea that that we get to keep the genuine fake news out, the, the psychotically insane out of the discourse, 
because it's not good for America, I guess I'm kind of okay with that. So I just. So I'm just gonna say, what's a conservative voice? That, you know, yeah. that's a, my first question is, what are we calling a conservative voice? I don't think Alex Jones is a conservative voice. I think he's a he's, he's a propaganda guy. He make he'll tell he'll tell you, yeah, I run a sh I'm an entertainment I'm an entertainment, and I make my money off of keeping people entertained, like people who watch pop. You know, how much truth is there? I don't know, but. Whether or not, what really concerns me is that as a society we're moving away from verification of information, yeah. fact-checking of information. I don't really care if you say what you have to say and you can back it up. Yeah. But, you know, and Candace is trying. I'm going to give her props for that. She's trying on things. She's still wrong. But she's trying. <laughs> <laughs> she's still wrong. Um, Alex Jones is on the way other, like Milo Yiannopoulos, I don't even consider them... Yeah, they're they're way, way over. But I gotta just I gotta defend Alex Jones for two seconds here. My in-laws, all of my in-laws are Alex Jones, not all of them, but a big percentage of them are Alex Jones fans, and they they take him seriously. They actually, and, and I'm just saying, when you're allowing that kind of percolation of real fake news, psychotically fake news, to be taken seriously, that that's that there's some reason to censor that kind of but stuff. But how is that really so different from um, what's, the, what's, what's the liberal guy Steve? I'm having memory what's issues. show? No. It's a talk show. He took over the Tonight Show. Um, Colbert, my buddy, Stephen Colbert. Colbert. Yeah. How Colbert. is that really so different from Stephen Colbert? You have a lot of people who are liberal who had no clue about anything related to politics who are actually getting their political knowledge watching Stephen Colbert, who yeah. are learning everything they actually know about politics from watching Stephen Colbert. How is that different? Well, this is a huge difference. Number one, and I happen to be a huge fan of Stephen Colbert, so I get well, it. <laughs> but but, I'm, but, but the stuff that he's putting out there is, there's a legitimacy to it. There's a mocking and there's too much about the hair and all, but, but there's a, when he's talking about core political ideas, he's not pulling out of the toilet stuff that's, that's untrue, that's fabricated, that's propaganda. I have not heard him deliver propaganda as far as but policy. My thing is, nobody's fact-checking. They're not fact-checking him anymore than the Alex Jones fans are fact-checking Alex Jones. Well, how do we know they're not fact-checking him? Just because this is how not I know. Because I talked to this guy, who I a bunch of people actually, who never voted before in their lives until 2016. When they voted... For Bernie Sanders. And I'm not gonna lie, I am not a Bernie fan. But I'm like, Bernie energized me. I'm like, what energized me about Bernie? And then they start rattling off the stuff he would say in his speech. And I'm like, so what's Bernie done lately? And then they can't tell you anything. They don't know anything. And that's the thing, it's like it's it's still a level of ignorance. Oh yeah, but that and yeah. the fact that and Colbert's credit, he's trying to provide some legitimate information. But I've seen people who confuse his his spiel with his his you know hilarious spiel with actual facts when he's when he's doing his show. So it's like what's really the difference here? Well, it, there is a difference between saying stuff that harms people and saying and, and joking and, and, and humor. And I don't know that I've never seen anything that he said that caused people to take a stance or an action that's going to harm people. Uh, and that's what Alex Jones does. Alex Jones teaches and demonizes, really demonizes, an entire category of people as being intrinsically possessed of the devil. <laughs> I agree with that to, to extent, but I also think that 
you know, even when you talk about Steve Colbert, you are always going to have extremes. And unfortunately, a lot of people take what Stephen Colbert says and they take it to the nth degree. So it's like, you know, and it, 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 it creates problems. It creates churn. I, I've got, I can't believe the amount of churn I'm getting in my, in my group on Facebook. Right? Because whether it's an extreme liberal or an extreme conservative, they're like, I can't deal with this anymore. You're biased. I'm out of here. And they leave. And the reason they leave is because they can't talk about Trump's hair. They can't talk about Nancy Pelosi's a drunk. They can't, because that's not, that's not what we do in my group. And so they have trouble simply because they can't be spiteful and vindictive. And so I think the underlying thing is, you know, we walk, I don't know if we ever had, uh, I'm not, if we ever had civil debate in first place. I, I, I would like to generate that, but it, it seems to be, it seems as if, you know, Social media makes that vindictive kind of conversation more prevalent. But we're actually wired for so imagine this, both parties, I mean just as a scenario testing here, <clears throat> imagine that MSNBC and Fox News were in business precisely to generate and focus on who can we hate. Jerry Springer. Look at how successful Jerry Springer was as a show. That would never have been as successful if there wasn't somebody throwing a chair every other episode at somebody because it was about trying to appeal to our base or instinct. So this infotainment revolution which has turned news into nothing but how can we how can we characterize the if it bleeds it leaves, you know. If we can put something there that's about violence and death and carnage. So so I agree with you 100%, that, and I think that's maybe the issue. Instead of the issue being, well, you know, this idea of censorship on social media, it's like maybe we need way more censorship of, of all the stuff that is just deliberately provocative to try to create division instead of finding common ground. Well, where are those lines, though? Because we're, like I said before, as information becomes more digital, those are going to be the comments. Right? Most people are going to, if you have internet and that's where you go to engage with other folks, that's where you go to get your information. How many, how many different perspectives are we going to mute? And will that create an echo chamber in and of itself where we say, okay, if you sound anything like this, you're not allowed to participate in the dialogue. And now you don't have those other perspectives because they're not meeting that standard. So we, I don't think we really know what that standard is, and I'll give you an example real quick. If that standard were true, why does the President of the United States still maintain their Twitter? Why do they still maintain a presence uh, on Facebook? I can explain Twitter and the Facebook thing to the President. Because they retweet these white supremacists. He retweets them all the time. He retweeted yeah. uh, you know, fake information about Nancy Pelosi recently. Yeah. So if it's about standards or terms of service, why do our most famous um, users still maintain their presence. The president maintains his accounts because he has put Twitter and Facebook in an awkward position. Yeah. And the awkward position is because he kept tweeting as the president, sure. it becomes a federal record. They can't delete it. They can't kick him off. They really can't. They, they have their TOS. The reality is they can't. It's now an official government record. And it, and to cut him off is to cut off basically the rest of the world from engaging with our government because that's how he has systematically chosen to engage with us. And so that is, 
and so you know let's be real social media itself is in a weird place because on one hand we're saying oh these are private platforms except you have the president communicating on those private platforms communicating with people that's why he had to unblock all of those people yeah. because it's it, you can't cut off dialogue with the government like that yeah so you know maybe there needs to be a more serious conversation about is there such a thing or should there be such a thing as privately owned social media but why can't they so as a a platform like for instance redder news you know the president makes up an account and then he doesn't uh abide by those standards he's the president's very litigious why can't twitter sue him for for damages against you know these folks because he's oftentimes he actually is slandering people putting out false information about so they why don't they you know take that kind of stand if they can't if they can't erase it because of historical stand you know they have to keep that for historical reference then why can't they go after him in court based on what he's doing terms of they could, but there's but what's the harm for violating the terms of service? The only people who have a case against him for terms of service harm and because that's the actual standard for in court, you have to demonstrate harm. Yeah. There's no harm in Twitter. Twitter making fat money off of the president being controversial. The only people harmed are the people he's lying about. Yeah. Those people would have to bring the suit because they're the only ones who have who can display demonstrate harm. Well, what you said if he's damaging, he, he essentially is damaging their reputation, basically making them contradict themselves. I'd say that's damages. We cannot abide by our terms of service because the President of the United States is putting us in a tight spot. But your terms of service are what you choose to make them. Right. And the reality is harm is typically defined by you have to demonstrate that you have a loss of some kind. What loss does Twitter have from the President Their reputation as being, as being fair. That? Well, how do you measure yeah, that? I can I can tell you right now. Like I just you like I just dollars, they're making money hands over fist. Well that's that's a different standard though. But you can you can put forth that standard of reputation I think is actually a, a longer term or brand is a longer term um, you know metric to use than even maybe money in a lot what of What about cases. character? Which and is character. essentially yeah, what you're saying. Exactly. How do you measure it? Well we have I depending typically or in the or the secularly or in what, what how do you measure that in court in order to be able to claim damages so that you can win because if you can't prove damages you cannot win it doesn't matter whether or not you broke the tos if they cannot demonstrate damages they're not going to we can we cannot delete the president from our platform because the law says we have to keep you know their tweets as a matter of public record but they are damaging our credibility to be able to uphold our terms of service. I'd say that's a decent argument to right, make. But what's the harm there? What if, how are you harmed? They are, their credibility is being harmed by not being able to do this. You can't really make that claim about credit, their credibility because their virtue, they are constrained from exerting their virtue. They are constrained right, for but they exactly do what delete. Said. They do delete all these other folks who are, who are engaging in identical behavior, but for the reasons you said, they can delete those folks, but their hands are tied with this individual. So I, I think there is an argument to me. I'm not a lawyer, obviously, but I think you could make an argument for that. Yeah, I, well, I, I mean, I, to her point, you can make that argument in court, right. but again, at the end of the day, it's like, okay, what's the judgment going to be? Yeah. I mean, they, they could judge, make a judgment that, yeah, we agree, but there's no awarding of any, 
you know, restitution or there's no, well, there's you no could, monetary you could, judgment. I think if not monetary, and that wouldn't be the goal. The goal would be uh, to change the president's behavior towards using their their platform for what it's meant to be used for. If if even on the record this happened, where they at least tried to uphold their standards, that would be critical. But they're not even trying. They're just like, okay, well, if, if the everyday person does this, they go to Facebook jail, they get kicked off, they get suspended, their Twitter account is gone. But if the president does it, literally retweets what this other individual got kicked off for, then what's the difference? They're, they're, they're literally um, able to continue their message to the president of the United States because guess what? He's not getting kicked off this platform. So that's what you're looking for. You're looking for an injunction to say... Just to be on the record. Just to put it on the record to say this is an issue. We are at least trying to combat their influence. If you can't take them off, at least show that you're trying. It puts us in an awkward position where now you are legislating from the courtroom. Because there's no, there's no, there's no legal, there's no legal recourse. There's no legal, the only thing you have is a terms of service. That's already been brought to court. They lost, they lost that fight. The legal recourse, okay, social media didn't exist when that law was put into place, right? Well, that's one of the problems with our law. So very we can update it. The legal recourse would be, hey, Congress, if the President of the United States must have a Twitter account because they're the President of the United States, we have to have historical records maintained, why can't the legal recourse be, okay, we took this to court, um, the Congress needs to change the law to say if the President of the United States insists on abusing the terms of service and also abusing their ability to have their, you know, their their account maintained as public record, then the private um, platforms that host them do not have to any longer so keep up with that law. Is that really then Twitter's issue or is it Congress's issue? Because Congress can do that now without Twitter going to court. I think Twitter, what Twitter should do as a company and as to maintain their cre credibility and character and be able to say without contradicting themselves, these are our terms of service, they should at least put that in place to show that they are, um, they don't pick, you know, and choose their favorites, because that's what they're doing right now. They have no credibility when it comes to their terms but of they, service. They, no, they actually do, because they tried to, they wanted to sanction the president. They were told you can't do that. They were told you can't shut him down, you can't turn him off, because it's a, it's a government record at this point. And it's, and Mark Zuckerberg went to Congress, literally, they sat him down and asked him, you know, hours worth of testimony. Mm -hmm. It goes the other way, too. If a company as powerful as Twitter wants, wants to take up issue, they can, go to, they can go to Congress and basically say, we're putting you on notice, you need to fix this because you're tying our hands for keeping but them on our platform. But isn't doing exactly what we have an issue with right now, allowing corporations to dictate legislation? We might need the legislation, but why isn't, let's think about, seriously, why isn't Congress working on legislation now? They know it's an issue, they know it's a problem, they're not doing it, why? But that's the same exact answer to the question of why Congress is doing nothing for a treasonous president who consorted by any reasonable definition with Putin to be able to sabotage our elections, which is just about as, as impeachable as I can imagine an offense being. Uh, and they're doing absolutely nothing on that, too, because they're right now you've got a veto power in the Senate that's just not going to get anything done, and we don't want to stir the coals too much, on even on the left.
So Congress yeah. is not accountable to the people at all. So we've already. Well, <laughs> Congress has to be. What we've often seen, I think, no matter what, we've seen that Congress often has to be nudged and pushed and prodded into action. Why? Because what they do is they use us. They use us as as an excuse to not act. And my constituents will never go for this. Therefore, I cannot take this action. You know because. They don't want me to do it, but then all of a sudden we say we want to do. They do. A lot of these folks just—that's all they act on is polls. Oh, the polls say this. Not really, though. Not really. Not really. Ninety percent. I have never gotten a poll from any of my representatives, either in Congress or at the state level. Yeah. Never. Okay. And yeah. I've been living in the same zip code for the past like. That was a long, long survey, longitudinal survey that said 70% of Americans at the bottom, no voice, no voice. So the polls are actually nonsense. The fact that 90% of Americans want universal background checks and we don't have them, that's because it doesn't matter. And all that matters is the National Rifle Association prefers not to have universal background checks. And, and But the issue about the corporation, which is kind of, you know, this idea that Twitter's all that has any influence over our legislators right now, we have to, that's all we can listen to because they don't care who, what the people think. Well, when I, when I say polls, I'm talking about literally whether or not they will get reelected based on what action they oh. take. The moment the poll says you will, you will not be able to, you know, hold office based on X, Y, and Z, that's, that's generally what scares them. Instead of trying to limit other people's free speech, as they did with Mother Teresa's quote, did you guys see that recently? There was a quote that somebody put out about Mother Teresa's one of her sayings, and and Facebook banned or Twitter, I think, banned it. They said we, we won't allow this speech. That's happened the last week. And so, if, as that happens, and then um, Senator Ted, Ted Cruz went to went to Twitter and said, you know, you cannot do this, and he got the the tweet was allowed then to be shared. Rather than doing that, which is really not, what can we use our voices for to promote our agenda in this same public platform? Because I can't limit what President Trump's going to say. But I don't know much about your organization. I'd like to learn right now a little bit about what you do. Yeah, I know what you are. I know sure. you're a news agency, but yeah. I don't know your agenda. I don't know your audience. I don't know. Your, I don't know. You know anything about that? Sure. And I, I think to your point, at the end of the day, I mean that's a very, very good. Ted Cruz going to Congress and saying this is 
how we feel about it. At the end of the day, what we have to understand is voter engagement, if it's organized, does change things. Yeah. Right. Um, what I do see, and what a lot of politicians aren't apt to say, because you're antagonizing your, your, your constituents, is why aren't you guys more involved? Um, when we talk about term limits, when we talk about uh, you know whether or not there's gerrymandering and all that good stuff, at the end of the day, if voters are engaged, if voters are actually watching, if voters are actually reaching out and putting their elected leaders and officials on notice, that does affect their behavior. A lot of times these folks are getting re-elected no matter what right. because of their name recognition. That's it. It's just name recognition. And we just saw, I don't know if you saw, um, you know, there was a, a recent documentary on Netflix about, uh, you know, various women that ran for Congress, one of them being um, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But uh, one, one of them was Cori Bush, and she, she was running... Uh, basically in a district that had almost universal name recognition for the incumbent. And they and she had a very uphill battle because everyone come election time just said, you know, I'm going to vote for this guy because they've been in office for however long and, and, and they're, you know, the, the universal name. So to answer your question about what Redder does, this is one of, one of our tools in our arsenal is just to make sure that we're talking to one another. D news is digital. It's, it's, it's going um, to become more digital over the next decade and, and beyond. Um, where newspapers used to be where you got most of your information from, right now that's online and there, there were only a few major news channels back in the day, right? There is not that same level of certainty and trust and confidence that we can put in the news publishers and sources that exist right now. Media literacy for, for people that are millennials and younger, um, they've grown up with knowing internet for their entire lives. There are babies that are going to grow up literally knowing how to use an iPad, you know, from the time that they're three years old. So they're going to be inundated with a constant barrage of information, much of it false. So what do you do? Um, where, where we come in is we try to make sure that there's a, a personal and a, uh, an in-person kind of in involvement and engagement with, with folks because the only way you're going to kind of sift through that is if we're actually looking at each other, talking, um, you know, across the aisle. It, it's easy online to demonize the other side because like we were talking about before, we get placed in these silos, we get placed in these very neat boxes because again that makes our politicians very comfortable well if I know that you are a conservative it will allow me to you know fill all these boxes out and say you're in this lane if you're a liberal you're in this lane but then what gets very uncomfortable for them is if there's nuance you know a, this is what I'm sorry? if there's nuance, nuance okay. a pro-choice conservative gets kind of a right. pro-life liberal. Well, what right. do I say to this guy? That, oh, sure. Yeah, now, sure. how do I how do I broker, um, you know, these deals with these folks, or how do I gain their trust and confidence if they don't necessarily believe in every wicket of of the uh, party line? Right. And the only way we can do that is if, is if we actually talk. And to Norland's point earlier, um, more and more when we actually talk to each other, yeah. and we have, um, you know, diversity and transpartisan um, engagement, 
we actually realize that we do happen to agree on a lot more than we disagree on. It's just finding those things. So I think really one of the only ways you can do that is creating an environment where it's safe to do so. It's safe to have, I think Tommy Lauren is one great example. You know, she worked for The Blaze. The what? The Blaze. It's, 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 a, a, it's a reliably conservative uh, news outlet okay, online, right? Sure. So, um, you know, she came out as as having pro-choice uh, nuances in, in her policy, in her politics. Guess what? Right after that, she didn't have a job there anymore. Yeah, she had a lot of hate I mean, this is the reality we live in. And millennials are not monolithic. They do not believe just one thing. They, they, they have nuanced and complex viewpoints of the world. And they do tend to lean towards diversity and inclusion more than ever. I mean, the younger you are now, you don't understand why, why are people racist? I don't understand that. You have people who now can go to prom with their same-sex partner or the same-sex, you know, uh, significant other. That wasn't happening, you know, maybe about 20 years ago. That was not a thing that was was able to. Do you have, do you disagree with that? Go ahead. Yeah, I'm gonna disagree with that. Um, it's happening. I've seen it. I think the fact that people are doing these things more publicly is a crime. Sure. But I think that there's still. One of, one of, one of the, the people that I know, we'll call him Kyle because that's his name. Sure. Um, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that would be a good reason to call yeah. him Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll call him Kyle because that's his name. So, Kyle also known as Kyle. Kyle, yeah. Kyle's millennial. Kyle is, um, and I'm watching Kyle slide and it's, it's blowing my mind. Right because he's, he's experiencing these financial challenges and all this other stuff and he is literally sliding from this peace love everybody into I gotta get mine I gotta get mine at any cost why don't you guys just pull up your belt pull, you know pull yourselves up by your bootstraps I'm like bro you didn't have bootstraps what are you talking about and you know it's like well I just bought a house I said you bought that house with help you had a VA loan your wife had a good job you're not even good with money you spent all your money, but you bought your, yourself, I'm sorry, you bought your wife a snowmobile for Christmas knowing she was never going to use it, hoping she would never use it because you were planning to take that baby out for the winter. That's not, okay, so, and he's not, he's not even realizing, he's just steadily sliding down this path of, and I don't want to. I don't want to call it conservatism because it's not really. It's not true to the principles of conservatism. It's just look. I gotta protect me and mine. And I think that's another thing that's a concern is that you know there's this dialogue about what conservatism is, and it's not necessarily about the ideals of conservatism, which I have finished with. I ain't gonna lie, but it's about people just trying to hold on to what they already have because they're struggling. And instead of having this dialogue about the fact that people are struggling. You know, we're busy pointing fingers at how you're not you're not doing what I did, and you're supposed to suffer because of it. Well, no, because all it you just lucky. All it have all it's required is to flip the switch, and you'd be sitting where I'm sitting. Yeah. So that's and that's why I said I, I don't know if I agree with that. I think I, I'm seeing more and more millennials who you know like millennials are like we should all love each other. No, millennials want to get out from underneath student debt. That's not about that's not about sharing and socialism. It's about getting out from under student debt because we sold them a lie. But that's beside the point. I mean, we don't talk about that, 
we just talk about the debt and how we need to address the debt. And it's like, why don't you start addressing the fact that we sold them a lot? That we made them believe that a degree equals skills, ability, and talent. That we made them believe that if you get the degree, you're automatically going to get a white collar job. And you'll never have to sweat a day in your life. I mean, these are lies we told people. And they believed it, they bought into it, they went and got that degree in basket weaving because it didn't matter what your degree was as long as you had one. And then they found out we lied. Now, so how do we deal with it? No, so that's why I say it's not, it's not, I don't think millennials are really so much different from any other generation. I think what, what it is, the biggest thing that's different is they're more likely to say, you know what, this is who I am. This is who I am. I love a man, I love a woman. You know, I might love my pet dog, I don't know, but whatever, this is who I am. I think and we, I think, that's cool. I think uh, for myself, you have to, I'm very a strong pro-life and I'm very strong conservative and I'm str traditional value is very important to me, but I'm wading into a generation which that doesn't exist. So I have to make a decision. I, I will remain pro-life, but in these other areas, I'm gonna have to have some compromise with people's values because they are very much become the standard value for Americans, unfortunately, in the area of, sec for example, gender issues, same-sex issues. So how do I, again, do be part, part bipartisan and where are that middle issues between conservatives and, Demo conservatives and liberals, Democrats, where are those issues that we can work together on? Because we are one nation. We have to work as one nation in this agenda. And how do we, you know, if we're going to be effective, that is, if we want to be effective, how do we find issues that motivate people? You know, jobs, for example, and student debt. And then how do we find things that we can we can work together that are able to get through Congress? One example is this pro-life. I'm very pro-life, but no president since Reagan has appointed justices conservative enough to overturn Roe versus Wade. And that's because they look at the culture and they say, well, the culture is largely pro-choice or, or pro-abortion, and I'm going to respond to that. I think that's what happens. Although well, Trump may have, mm -hmm. Trump may have appointed two uh, two justices, even in all his flaws that he has, he may have done this, and I don't know what's going to be the response though, because they well, generally follow tradition. But my well, point is, the overall issue is how can we as individuals join together and push forward issues with our voices rather than try to censor other people's voices yeah. even though it's happening it's yeah. wrong exactly well, but that the two, go ahead oh, sorry. so a couple things one um traditionally justices who go into the go onto the bench regardless of what position they are become more liberal over time uh, so that's a thing that's just a real thing uh traditionally two um, on issues, for example, like around same-sex marriage, and I'm not telling everybody they got to do it the way I do it, this is how I do it. Um, how is what you're doing impacting me? And if it's not, I have more power to you, have peace, good luck. That's, that's basically it. And then, you know, three, how do we continue to have this dialogue? We do this, we come and we sit and we look each other in the eye. It's really hard to be a jerk when you're sitting there looking mm -hmm. at somebody's face. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's really hard to say like, you know, well, it's hard to do that. That's right. You, you're looking them in the eye and it's like, ooh, that hurt, I didn't mean to do that. You know, it's hard to be an, an awful person when you're actually dealing with people in person. And I think, I think, you know, we've gotten away from that. Social media is taking us away from that. And we've forgotten how to do that. I'm not going to lie. And it might help a little bit if we all actually use actual self-identities instead of 
you know, there are a lot of avatars out there, for want of a better term. It's like, oh, this is me. And I have a really good one, this front of which is like a little stick figure guy who's sucking on his stuff. Like, what the heck are y'all talking about? I love that. But it, it deep It's personal. not you, yeah. It's totally me. But it, um, <laughs> it makes it less personal. It makes it easier for people to kind of attack. Dehumanize you, too. To dehumanize. And it's weird. But, you know, if I put my own face out there, people are nicer, they're kinder, they're less likely to be jerky. But here's the thing, so Neil, to your point about the coming together around the common ground, too, yeah. you know, my whole life work for 23 years has been about the fact that the two-party system prevents that. It actually prevents us coming together because it has established the stack, pro-life versus pro-choice, gay marriage versus not down the issue and it's really the polar ends of the spectrum so that we don't the entire middle is disfranchised and it wouldn't matter if you and I because I'm on the progressive side the Democratic I, I got some friends that are they're saying I'm way way to the left of the Democratic Socialist but I'm gonna go ahead and consort with the conservative with the Democratic Socialist <laughs> so the, the, my hippie my unrepentant hippie friends but then you go all the way over to the far right and the fact of the matter is is we do have that common ground but because we don't have democracy we haven't really empowered people. We can sit around this room and if we came to some agreements about some things, it wouldn't make a diddly bit of difference because whatever we agreed to, neither party would embrace. I promise you that on most social issues, we would end up because we, we are nuanced, because we would look at personal responsibility and social responsibility and we would be just not listened to. But if we had 10,000 of these happening, if we had 10,000 of these groups across the country, then you've got a critical mass at some point that says, wait a minute, why do we why do we live in this two-party divided system? And the challenge is, is is really compromise. I think it is compromise. I mean I have my a lot of my views here I think would be echoed, but if we go out beyond and go to the next fifty, hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, it gets watered down. But those core needs we all have as human beings and, and as Americans are still there. There are kids, my daughters are coming out of college and my one daughter's looking for a job. All of us believe that that's important. Uh, when someone wants to get married and they want to have a long-term marriage, all of us believe that's important. Very few people in the world really espouse divorce as a solution. They say maybe it's okay. They don't say this is us, we should all get divorced, no. So if we can find those Corman needs and work on those, then I think we would have power. And we'd have to grow that, of course. But you have one platform for your, you know, that's, and you would have to decide for you and I for my voice. But I think that's where our power is, is finding those core needs and then finding a way to politicize it or make it something that's doable in our culture. And I know that the, the two sides are very divided and also, you're right, they have ni nicely labeled pro-life, pro-choice, you know, pro-marriage, pro gay, all these things, but how do we reach people in a different way? Because the politicians are not the only ones with a voice. Not in this country. I like, I like, so like, one of the things I think we could do as a society, and I think most people would balk at it at first, but it makes incredible sense, is we should take government out of marriage. You want to get married according to your faith? Get married at your church. But take the government out of marriage. Because what we do right now is we give people a benefit for being married. It's not a big one. It used to be better. But we still give them this benefit. And we get involved in the marriage as a government, which is, and that marriage is, for many people, it's a, it's a bond between, you know, those two people and their God, and it's that relationship. Why is government even involved in that, in that 
relationship based on faith. So then what's the benefit to us? Because what W, what's in it for me is uh, when I was in sales, that's what we always tried to believe. And the reason that's important is because how will it motivate you to make to do something? I believe in freedom, like you're talking about. But how can we motivate that millennial who's just coming out of college with 50000 in debt to do something? Because otherwise, it's just an idea that I have and I put on Twitter, I put on things. How do I get something with some traction behind it so we can get people's involvement? Because otherwise, it's just a, just an idea. Yeah, well, that's a nice idea. That's a nice idea, it is. But how can we get people motivated to act? That's what you said earlier when you were talking about this issues about what millennials do and what's important to them. If we understood the mind, because here's the deal. People at 18, they're our future. And the challenge is that right now, I did a stunt, I, I worked for a job, only, it only took me one week to find this job. It wasn't right for me, but it was. They taught me that 80% that of income in the United States is for people 50 and over. So it's a huge gulf between me being 55 and my daughters in the 20s. So how can I, that's really money and time is what people speak to people. How do I spend the money and my time? So how can I motivate those millennials who are coming out? I, I don't have a billion dollars to give away to the black college. I don't happen to have that. But what do I have that I can help in a See, real but then that, way? That, that gets into a conversation that typically gets shut down because it addresses the fact that we have wealth and equity in the first place. Right. We have huge wealth and equity in this country. Right, we do. And, it's, and, and part of that has to do with and I don't know that you can legislate that. I don't. I don't want to legislate. I want to find a way to economize it. I want to find well, a way you where you got to get. You don't. You don't have to. You form a business, and you find well, you your. You can't form a business without revenue. That's, Not well, that's right. I agree. But I have a and way. And I can't even get a loan as a, as a young person. The vast majority of time, my son started a business. He came to me. He laid out his business plan. It was beautiful. I looked at. It, I said, "It's beautiful, sweetheart." I don't want to crush your dream. You're not going to get along. What about you? Have any wealthy friends? You have any people that can invest in no, that? No, I'm I, black. I, I live in the inner city. I don't have no wealthy friends. This is a problem. The problem is we are. Yeah, I know that's segregated. a problem. Yes, I know that. Segregated. Not just, not just, not just racially. Right, right, right. But, but I mean, but, yeah, yes, rural yes. versus urban. I mean, right. that, that is the problem. The problem is, and, and the question is, how do we, we talk about affirmative action, but affirmative action carries all sorts of, you know, connotations that are negative and political, but the fact is, is how, how can we collectively say we're rectifying some systemic oppression, and let's label it what it is, when your opportunities are denied, for us to say, how do we, how do we kind of rectify that? How do we make sure that we're giving you an equal start? And then beyond that, there's no such thing as an equal start. If I'm bored with it, born with a severe developmental disability to say that my life prospects for the rest of my life, I'm going to be at the bottom end of that spectrum because society is not going to provide me with the uplift necessary, the tools necessary, the adaptive uh, technologies that allow me to maximize my well-being. That's, and that's why Kurtz, I mean, worked for how many decades there is, is kind of a, a point of topic of, of concern. It's like how libertarian versions of equity is like, oh, you made your own bed, personal responsibility, and whatever you got is what you deserve because of your moral virtue or whatever. And the fact is, we are, we have, we're born, not our fault, our DNA is not our fault, but we're born geographically and DNA-wise into opportunity. And that opportunity really is a hugely inequitable uh, yeah, set. It yeah, it is. Especially in today's America. To answer your question, maybe I can meet with yours. Is your son? Yeah. The reason I would do this, I have a background in nonprofit work, mm -hmm. and only as a volunteer, but 
I knew, I learned how to raise money through grants and through taking a mission to those wealthy people that we all would like to be, but it's got to be from either nonprofit or some mission that they can get behind. See, but he's not doing a nonprofit. He's right. literally What does he want, what does he want to do? He's, he's creating an American anime Wow. Yeah. A cartoon? A cartoon business? Uh, what is that? Uh, Japanese animation. Oh, I don't know Japanese what that is. Anime. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so um, it's it's a niche business, okay? Um, Very popular. Anime is huge. It's yeah. extremely popular across the entire United States. But all of the all of the warehouses to create this type of this very specialized form of art are in Japan. And so he was like, no. There are too many people in the United States who want to do this work, who want to do this stuff. They want, and you know, he's been studying this for a long time. He can't draw for a lick, but he knows what. <laughs> That's he knows what he recognizes certain things. So yeah. he's like about a year away from the first issue of his first magazine on this project, and you know, just he's not getting he's. You know, finding an investor, first off, they don't understand it. He's trying to, you know, trying to explain it, trying to get people to understand what he's talking about. You know, and, and he's got different different genres within the genre, because yeah. anime is actually quite broad. And people don't understand how big a thing it is. You have kids who grew up on it. I grew up on it, kind of. Um, and there, there are certain things that are universal within that world. Everybody knows about it. I mean, even if you don't know about it, a lot of people have heard of Dragon Ball. I hope you know about Dragon Ball. <laughs> nope. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> a little bit. You know? Tell us. It's just one of the most popular. It's, it's, it's like, you know, on the level of Power Rangers. So, is he going to have a college degree? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty, so pretty popular. Is he going to college? Joy, He was working on his degree. Yes. He's like, I'm not sure this is even going to be helpful to me. Because what he's doing, and this is another thing that we need to start really talking about in society, why do we limit people based on this piece of paper they spent all this money to get that's actually not helpful to them? Yeah. If he had a college degree, he could teach abroad. If he taught abroad in Japan, he could connect with people that would have But the, that's, what that's he the needs. problem. He doesn't want he doesn't want a Japanese artist, he wants the American artist. Mm -hmm. The people who are here can't get a job with the Japanese production house because they're not Japanese. Also, there's a cultural racial issue as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think too, what we have to understand, like realize, is the internet is probably one of our greatest equalizers right now. Like for instance, um, you're, you can make a an Instagram page right now yeah. and advertise on a daily basis and grow an audience kind of organically, yeah. and you don't have to worry about before, right? For instance, right now. We're, we're doing, uh, we're having content made, right? There's video. Technically, any one of us in the age of social media has a television show that can be on the same level as even some of these you know, bigger sitcoms that are out there. Because you don't have to go to an executive producer, you don't right. have to go to a broadcasting company. You literally post to social media, and if it takes, it takes. And you can have just as broad an audience as a lot of these um, major television shows or even movies, if if it's good enough. So I think the biggest thing about right now when you're doing companies or even e-commerce, like anyone can start an online store, but they have access to the internet and they can you know pay a little bit of an initial startup cost. 
Um, the internet equalizes all that. You, you literally put it out there, and you can you can grow an audience. It's just how good is your product, and then the second part is how good are you at marketing it. And that's something that I face with even Redder is are we marketing it well enough? Are we getting the word out? So. That's what I would say. It's just you got to get it out there. You know, yeah. and Discipline Graphics, it's, it, he, he finally got all of his artists, which was awesome because he wants to do it literally like the manga books that you get. Yeah. You know, they, t they tend to be thick. Shonen, Shonen Jump's book is thick. Yeah. Mm. Sorry, does, I'm talking about Does he, does he, <laughs> does he have, uh, that's okay. We, I can translate. Does he, does he have advisors at all? Does he have adult advisors that are helping him in this? Well, does he have it, a, you, know, you got to understand, the only people who can advise him on this are people who don't want to advise him on this because they don't want competition. Mm. The people who are here can advise him financially on things, right. but they can't really advise him on the business because what he's doing is really kind of unique. A lot of people try and publish their own work that they do, but nobody's out there trying to be the American version of Shonen Jump. Uh, and he's got, you know, the fact that I was I was impressed when you finally showed me the the, uh, the initial work that was coming through. I was like, oh, baby, you really were working on this. <laughs> um, but so the question is, uh, you know, is what is the overall goal? What is his overall, overall desire? What what does he want? He wants to make a profit off of this yeah, business. Direct, direct to consumer. Direct to consumer. That's yeah. where he's going. Direct to consumer. So could he? I don't know. The question. I don't know much about your industry. Actually, almost nothing. So could he? Form a uh, Japanese. Could he translate his uh, desires and abilities into a Japanese version, or would he form an American version of this anime? Well, that's what he's doing. And, he's doing an American like a, version. He's doing. He's doing. He's not recreating stuff that they have. He's going to original content creators here in the United States. He's curated um, a group of about ten of them for now. He's got some on reserve in case they flake out, <laughs> and he's putting together. A book. It, it, it's uh, like a periodical or a magazine that people can subscribe to and receive, and they can either do it digitally or they can, you know, go for the hard copy. So it's a physical product now. I would say that, you know, in this in this day and age, what he could do, if he can tell a story well, this is what I'm trying to do. There's crowdfunding. There's uh, pre-sales. Hey, if I if I come out with this book. Would you all buy it? Put it on social media. He can literally have those sales made before the physical product is actually done. There's still a problem with yeah. audience. So there's still a problem of how do you, because there's a car well, the, course thing If you have pre-sales, you have an audience. No, no, no. The, the pre-sales presume that you have an audience. The whole point is if he doesn't, how, what is it? It doesn't presume because like, if, if the people sign up to say, I want to buy this product. No, no, no. But I'm saying they don't have anything to sign up to unless you've already reached them. So that the idea of marketing is you have to actually have an reaching. audience. No, no, no. You're, you're fixing the, the problem that has to be solved, which is marketing. <laughs> so, okay, but, well, you got to get out so there. there right? yeah, you just got to so get out there. He's in all of these nerd circles. Yeah. I'm in some of the nerd circles, too. Where the, you, the nerd, nerd circles? Nerd, nerd circles. Nerd circles, circles yeah. Yeah. Where, where, you know, you're out there and it's like, and this conversation comes up periodically. Why doesn't anybody in America do this? Oh, they, this group is doing it. I'm sorry, I'm trying not to advertise for anything. Oh, that's... <laughs> um, you know, but yeah. So What's it called? Undis undisciplined graphics. Undisciplined graphics. It's a play on the concept of manga. Manga is, uh, it's, it's actually that's actually what how it translates into English. Undisciplined drawing or, or art. So it's undisciplined graphics is the name of the organization. And he, um, 
I, I didn't, I'm gonna give my boy props because, you know, when I was racing, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm not sure this one, I'm not sure. And, and you know, he's so specific, he's so particular. He knows exactly how it's supposed to look, exactly how it's supposed to turn out. What, and you know, he's got his plan. He's like, we need to get this many subscribers. I cannot advertise to the pool of people until I'm closer to the release date. Because when you when you sign people up too soon and you don't produce anything for them, yeah. you lose them. Yeah. So you know he's he's got this very well laid out, very well mapped, and he's been he's been using other avenues to raise revenue. Because I told him you're just not going to get you're not going to get you you can maybe go to the crowdfunding thing, and I did recommend that to him. You can potentially go and try and do this other stuff, but I'm just telling you because what you're doing is so different, and because everybody's expect you have to first explain the market yeah. and even though you have all these nerd circles where all the nerds get it most of them are not in positions that they're going to be able to give you money for it so how would he make this appealing to a, an advertiser who would his audience be for consumers it sounds like young adults well, there's, that's you got to understand anime is a whole world unto itself so exactly for example um kyle yeah. that we were talking about Kyle's business is called, has a business he calls Nerdwood, where he builds custom furniture and, and pieces for people based on their infatuation with all things nerdy, anime, video games, what have you. I have, and this is how I met Kyle actually, because in my house right now, there is a bed designed for my teenage son, he's 19 now, and it's a Kingdom Hearts bed. It's green and black, it's got the Kingdom Hearts logo on it. It lights up from behind, so it's really cool at night. You know, it looks really awesome. I'm so jealous. But, <laughs> you know, and so this is what Kyle does. So there's this whole network of potential advertisers, of people who are already in this space, who are creators, who need to be able to get their, their product advertised to the right audience. And there's shows. There's shows, if he, and it, and it does, Kind of cost prohibitive depending on what you go to but i mean anime shows are very very heavily um you know trafficked he goes there and he had a booth or something you know yeah. figured that part out he literally would have he would gain exposure overnight yeah and so it's it's all these things combined that you have to do and it's again it's consistency Just instagram social media outreach and then being physical and being out there handing out those cards but to take us back to what our subject matter was <laughs> Yeah. No, so how do we integrate this conversation <laughs> with what we're talking about? This because, is where the power but, is yeah, in helping people is, versus like, ideas. In school, right. where home ec was, mm -hmm. instead of all the stuff that we're learning, the stuff that I know I don't use, that I had to sit Can we through. get home ec back though too? Yeah. Well, put, this, put, <laughs> put business and finance and entrepreneurship kind of lessons into school. But you know, home ec used school. to teach people how to balance a checkbook. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't learn that. Well, I learned how to cook pancakes on, and go on DaveRamsey.com for that. You can yep. learn all that on, on Ramsey. Yes, Ula, I know Dave Ramsey. Ramsey. Right. Entree leadership. Right. Right. Neil, you podcasts. and Ula would never, in a normal context, <laughs> ever have. I mean, I'm just well, being honest here. Well, intersected in terms of, except that this brought you in. We, got, right, we came yeah. together around this common idea, and sure. that's what Kurt and I are working on, trying to conscript him this idea of a broader context for meetups that would include this. So it's not just what politics. Is, tell us, what is, so what, is, what is your can, desire? Tell Kurt, us that. Kurt, can I, can I, do you want to speak to One America or you want me to? 
Hey everybody, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Redder Podcast. There's a lot more where that came from. Just want to take this time to ask you to subscribe, rate us, and share with your friends. Until next time. <laughs>